You are listening to SPN, the Sports Podcasting Network. <laughs> Quiet upstairs. The SPN Roundtable on the Sports Podcasting Network. And welcome to the uh, SBN Roundtable. I'm Wayne Rollins. Joining me today from Philadelphia, Philly.com, is Jonathan Tannenwall and uh, Kevin's here too. Hey, Kevin, how you doing? I am good yourself, Wayne. You're with the Sports Podcasting Network, I think. I've heard of that. Yes, I think you have heard of it. Okay, yeah. Jonathan, how are you? I'm fine. I'm glad the music changed. The, the, the Eye of the Tiger one just is overwhelming. Yeah, that was my first producing effort when I was first got my uh, my editing sound wear down, and and we realized that probably a ten minute intro was a bit long, so uh, so we're gonna rework that. But uh, um, I was, by the way, I was gonna join you from my desk in the middle of our newsroom since I'm at the office right now. But uh, you know, as as anybody who knows a newsroom well uh, would know, there's a lot of background noise and yammering. So the ambient noise is good for effect, but maybe not for an actual radio show. Yeah, it, well, and here in Canada, we're we're quickly becoming not aware of what a newsroom is because they keep closing them, Jonathan. But uh, that's another story for another day. Uh, I'm feeling full well, believe me. Yeah. All right. Uh, there was some breaking news in the soccer world last night, which I think ties into this show quite well, and it involved the uh, the U.S. women's national team, the, the world champions, that of course won the uh, the World is, Cup here in Canada. Is that so? Yeah, I, I've heard that too. And uh, the United States Soccer Federation as well uh, has uh, taken them to court. Now, some people are calling it a lawsuit. I, I know that we have listeners that will dispute that, but that's pretty pedantic. They're essentially trying to uh, uh, demonstrate that a CBA is still in effect, if I'm correct, Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan uh, is pretty knows this stuff pretty good, so we're going to get him to explain it, and then we thought we'd tie it into a general conversation about about women's sports. So we'll start with you, Jonathan, and just sort of lay the land for us. Tell us what exactly the USSF is doing here. The bluntest way that I can put it is that they're trying to stop the women's national team from going on strike. The women's national team in the United States has a players' union. So does the men, has its own players' union. I believe that the Canadian men and Canadian women also have players' unions, do they not? I believe so, although they don't have anywhere near the same amount of power as, as the U.S. players do just because of the, the success level. But yeah, they, they do have uh, uh, negotiate with the CSA. Well, the, the, uh, the U.S. women's team's power has certainly grown over the last few years, and not only because they won the World Cup, but because uh, the players are more successful and recognized and commercially marketable and all of those other things. And they draw big crowds to stadiums and make a fair amount of money off. Um, the women had a CBA. In fact, they've had two collective bargaining agreements in their history. One ran from 2001 to 2005. The second one ran until the end of 2012. When that one expired, uh, there was not another one formally agreed to. They have since been operating under a memorandum of understanding which was meant to continue most of the terms in that CBA, one of which was an agreement that the players would not strike and the U.S. Soccer Federation would not lock them out. That's a fairly common thing to find uh, in good CBAs all over uh, organized labor, whether sports or not. The problem is it would have been nice if there was specific language in that memorandum which either outlined the no-strike provision or made it explicitly clear that uh, 
everything not outlined in the memorandum still stood from the previous CBA. Neither of those things were there. The lawyer who, on behalf of the union, signed the previous CBA and the one before it and the memorandum of understanding that is in existence now and is supposedly in effect until the end of this year, 2016, was a lawyer based in Philadelphia who I know fairly well by the name of John Langle. At the close of 2014, Langle ended his representation of the Women's National Team Players Union. Uh, I have heard uh, that his representation was ended. It was not his choice. It was more the players were somewhat interested in getting rid of him. Uh, and his replacement, a Texas-based lawyer by the name of Rich Nichols, came to the table with a fairly more aggressive view of things. He claimed in an email to U.S. Soccer, which was included as evidence in this filing, quote, it is the position of the Women's National Team Players Association that the CBA no longer exists and further that the memorandum of understanding is terminable at will. What does that mean? You guessed it. We might be able to walk out when we feel like it. When would they feel like it? Well, gosh, it's a week before the Olympic qualifying tournament. That's kind of a big deal, isn't it? And do you have the feeling, Jonathan, that that's, they would have strike if the, the last night would not have happened? Is, is that the feeling it is today that it, they're uh, trying to just stop the team from not going to the qualify if they don't have they want uh, weeks out? Is that really the feeling today? Well, Nichols told Sports Illustrated Wednesday night that it would, they were never going to try to strike before the Olympic qualifying tournament. Um, the ease on this makes it sound like the date to highlight is February 24th. But that would put a strike threat on the table on the verge of the Olympics, obviously, and also this big tournament of games that they've got coming up against France, England, uh, and Germany that's going to be played in the United States as an Olympic wall, qual as an Olympic <clears throat> preview. <laughs> or, preview, uh, yes. Yeah. Warm-up, certainly. Um, apologies to the listeners for stepping on myself there. Um, but, you know, it's going to be a big deal, and they're going to sell lots of tickets and so on and so forth. So the, the women's national team, certainly right now, between having won the World Cup, the Olympics coming up, all these other big games coming up, the star power that they have, Carly Lloyd having won the FIFA Women's Player of the Year and being a big deal in the fourth largest te uh, television market in the United States, which is where I live, hi. Um, they got a lot of leverage right now, and they're trying to use it for once. And I don't entirely blame them, except... U.S. soccer might be right in this case. If they can get the judge to prove that the memorandum holds up and everything in the CBA not enumerated in the memorandum holds up, U.S. soccer's got better odds of winning this thing than they do to losing. Yeah, you highlighted a passage in your Twitter feed last night that, to me, I don't know how they argue around it, the women, that is, the the fact that the their their representative said on record that the, the CBA was in effect till December 31st, 2016. Am I, that am I wrong on that? was a mistake by John Langle. Um, yeah. He was testifying in an arbitration hearing uh, in a case involving the men's national team. I believe the case had something to do with image rights. I'm not entirely sure of that. But there have been a few of those cases in the last few years. And, and let's take a quick aside here to note for your listeners. Image rights, sponsorship deals, etc. are included in these collective bargaining agreements so that the U.S. Soccer Federation cannot make money off the players' likenesses uh, without the players getting a cut of it, which is a perfectly reasonable thing for the players to want, I would say. Now... 
officially this document that's supposed to run its course from 2013 till the end of 2016 is a memorandum of understanding. Langle, the former attorney for the Players Union, said under oath, uh, when asked to define the history of collective bargaining agreements between the U.S. Soccer Federation and the women's national team, he counted three. 2000 to 2004, which was the first one. I think I might have misspoken about it earlier. 2005 to 2012, and now December, now 2013 till December 31st, 2016. By categorizing that as a collective bargaining agreement under oath, as the saying goes in sports, it counts. And I think that might have been part of what cost him his job, ultimately. Certainly, yeah. I mean, overall, to, to sort of move this into a more general conversation, Jonathan, uh, it speaks to an ongoing sort of um, disconnect, we'll call it, between the Federation and the women. Uh, the women have alleged at various times that the Federation is not respecting them at the level that they feel that they deserve. Uh, this goes back to stuff like the, the playing on turf in the uh, – uh, what they call it, the celebration tour uh, after winning the World Cup. Uh, this, the, 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 a lot of things like that. Does, is, is that a fair way to say it, that there's just this disconnect between the women themselves and the Federation in terms of what they're worth to them and, and how they're being treated? I think so. Um, I'm not sure that this is exactly how I would have gone about it. Um, I would rather have seen a more earnest effort made to have an actual collective bargaining agreement at some time since the you know end of 2012 than now. Um, Major League Soccer found itself in a similar situation uh, where its uh, labor terms were being governed by a memorandum of understanding instead of a full-blown CBA, uh, which had some members of the Players Union ready to potentially call a strike this past, uh, during the offseason before the 2015 season. We all remember that. Um, I'll disclaim here, as I have many times before, I am a unionized journalist. I'm the, on the executive board of my union local. I have a pretty good understanding of why collective bargaining agreements matter and why they should be as specific as possible um, and not leave things to chance. Now, the women have right to complain about a lot of things. Turf is one of them. Although they also know that they make a lot of money off these games that are played in big stadiums and draw big crowds. The one that offends a lot of people more is provisions about what kind of airline flights they have, that the men get uh, business class and higher accommodations a little bit more often than the women do, and sometimes a lot more often than the women do, because the men are flying internationally more often than the women are flying. They're usually flying domestic and in some cases short haul. So I'm, uh, I'm with the women on a lot of that stuff. And I'm a little more inclined to believe that US, than U.S. soccer says that they are, that they've got the money to do this. Um, you know, you'll hear people from U.S. soccer say, oh, we've, we'd love to do more. We've just, you know, we've wanted to make sure over the years that we have the money to do all these things. Well, guess what? If they can pay Jurgen Klinsmann the millions of dollars that they're paying him, then I think they've got the money to treat the women who, by the way, actually win things and, by the way, more often play more attractive soccer uh, a little better. What we're seeing, Jonathan, is it the beginning of a rift between the players themselves and the higher management of United States Soccer Federation, especially the women's national team side? Oh, I wouldn't go that well. No. 
for two reasons. One, I wouldn't go that far, and two, it's not the beginning. <laughs> Do you think it's going to have an impact on the field? Do you think uh, those uh, issues that can be uh, l lawyer, local court issues, do you think it's going to have a problem on the actual team itself on the field before the Olympic preview or uh, this summer? Do you think it's going to have repercussions on the performances of the team? Oh, no. No, no. Good. That's good. And uh, um, they're all together on this. You know, it's going right. to... The, the, problem, the problem will be, and I don't foresee this happening, if there is a strike before the Olympics... And the U.S. Soccer Federation, in conjunction with the United States Olympic Committee, has to call in replacement players for the Olympics. I really don't see that happening, but that's the doomsday scenario, and that's the doomsday scenario that U.S. Soccer lay out in its filing, saying this is why we have to get this thing established that they can't strike so that we don't get screwed over at the Olympics. And they also, by the way, let me see if I can pull up the clause in here. Uh... Quote from U.S. Soccer's filing. U.S. Soccer would also face the possibility of a substantial fine from FIFA, along with the possibility of a suspension by FIFA of U.S. Soccer and all of its national teams from participating in subsequent FIFA competitions. Oh, dear. Hmm. I, replacement players. That's an odd phrase when you're talking about a national player pool, Jonathan. I mean, how... I guess that uh, there, there were three phases of sort of uh, payment levels that the women got here. So they'd have to be dipping way down into the like college players, I guess, is what would happen if, if there was some kind of potential. No, 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 no. There are players in the NWSL and, and in Europe even who are not part of this collectively bargained player pool because there are there are specific terms on what gets you membership in the union and, you know, into the pay scales and things like that, including the number of games, excuse me, the number of rosters you make over a given period of time. You know, this is all very uh, concretely defined. It's a little dense, but it is defined. So there is, there is a pool of replacement players that they can tap into, and this happened with the men a couple years ago. Um, so it's not, it's not out of the question. Now, it doesn't mean that, that they'd be able to go to Rio and win a gold medal, you know, with whoever they take. But uh, nobody's saying it's, Im it's impossible for this to happen. It's just uh, implausible. Yeah, well, yeah, certainly there's uh, the Olympics or what these women play for, too. So you have to take the human element into it as, as well. Uh, I suspect that they're probably targeting those, uh, those friendlies, as you said, which are, are moneymakers for the Federation in their mind. Um, you know, I think probably both parties are a little reluctant to put the books completely wide open there. Uh, to, to look at things. But I want to turn the conversation, Jonathan, in, into something more, a little more general now, if, if I could. And that's uh, sort of the, how women's sport is perceived and, and, and seen and all that. And in many ways, the U.S. women's soccer team has a unique position in the fact that they, they're probably the most visible, the most well-known, the most successful of all of, of women's sports. So is this dispute, is, is some of these issues that we're talking about, do you, is, is it a societal thing? Is that why there's resistance to paying them or putting them in first class and things like that? Is it something deeper than just a, a dispute between the U.S. Soccer Federation and the U.S. women? No, I don't think so. I think, I think the U.S. Soccer Federation is really quite progressive about this stuff. Um, you know, would I like it if there was absolute equality? Yes. Would even the women's national team concede that the peak uh, Q rating of the men is probably higher and that they 
travel internationally more often and that they, you know, cast their net to find players who are in Brazil and Germany and so on and so forth and therefore might need a bigger scouting budget. Yeah, they probably would. Uh, if it was another country, I'd wonder. If it was Mexico, I'd certainly wonder because the Mexican Federation has a long history of treating their women's team poorly. Uh, but I, I don't ascribe some global phenomenon to this beyond, you know, women demanding fair treatment as well they should. You know, FIFPRO represents the women's now, which, the women now, which is the global soccer players union. And that took them a long time to come around to when they acknowledged, uh, when they made the official announcement, which they did in Vancouver right before the Women's World Cup final last summer. I was there. I wrote a long piece about it. They acknowledged it took them too long to come around to understanding why this matters. And now they're out there trying to fight for the women, which is good. Uh, and in fact, Karina LeBlanc was was front and center in this thing when they made the announcement. Uh, one, one thing I, that I, I don't, just to conclude, I, I don't think that other than the general treating women equally and fairly, I don't think there's something in this particular instance that is so extraordinarily meta, you know? No, yeah, absolutely. Uh, one thing that fascinates me, Jonathan, is I hate to generalize, but I do it all the time, is women's sports in general. If you're looking at every athlete that are women, because for me, women's sport is not actually a thing. It's just sports and women are athletes that do participate in sports. And if you're looking at the Round the Rouseys, the Holy Home, there's a lot of great women uh, role model, great woman athlete in the world. Where do you see women's sports right now do you think it's where it's at do you think it's respected enough or do you think we still have a long ways to go if somebody wants to be involved in usc regardless of gender more power to them but i'm not sure i hold them <laughs> role models this way sorry as athletes uh, yeah right no yes um as as popular athletes that are dominating their sports. Uh, no absolutely and generating revenue Look, which so, usually is the one thing that's not within a women's athlete right. but yeah the example that I'd, I'd put on here is the National Women's Hockey League, which launched recently. And some of your listeners may know a good friend of mine, Meg Linehan, or Twitter handle is It's Meg Linehan, and she covers the hockey league in depth and the issues that the women have had to fight for respectability and for the, for the simple ability to make a full professional living playing a sport, which I think, Kevin, is the point you're getting at. Um. You know, we know it was not always so. We know that the women's soccer leagues, you know, they're on the third one now, and, and the NWSL is going to be the first one that goes to a fourth season. We know that if the WNBA did not have the resolute financial back, backing of the NBA, it would not be where it is. Um, but building fan bases for these teams and these leagues is not easy. And as Major League Soccer can attest, it takes a long time. And unfortunately, unless you've got investors willing to sink a lot of money in, uh, when the time comes that they give up on losing money, you know, it might, not, it might only be three years or something like that, as we've seen with the last two women's soccer leagues. So the challenge is to create sustainable fan bases to not spend too much out of the gate on the costs that you can make be reasonable, including venues and front office infrastructure and things like that. 
it's tough. You know, I'd imagine Dwayne, the Canadian Women's Hockey League, has somewhat of the same problem, don't they? Well, yeah, you're you're looking at crowd. I mean, just just look at the crowd difference. A couple less than a thousand will show up, and yeah, and a lot of the yeah, you, they the top teams in the league are are backed by well, Montreal. They, they're backed by the Habs now. That's a big deal. Um, that is something I think that the the, the Canadians felt that the, that they needed to do from a sort of social standpoint, not necessarily a financial investment standpoint. Um, well, they needed to do to uh, to benefit to stay alive as well. If it wasn't for the partnership that was announced last year, I don't think the the stars, which they were called before, would have survived. Uh, it's not necessarily a full time gig for all everybody involved in those uh, leagues, and it's still a long ways to go. Where you're right, the fact that they have partnership with bigger clubs now, the Habs in Montreal, does uh, help with. Uh, infrastructures with uh, membership gyms and uh, helping make buy but if it wasn't for that partnership it would be a lot difficult just to get a meeting with the advertisers sometimes it's so hard and now because of the marketing partners with the Montreal Habs as well you get that meeting so sometimes it's not even just on the pitch or infrastructure it's actually a network of uh, people you know Yeah, well, that's yeah what I was getting at. I think that the Canadians felt that it was important for them uh, to to assist the women's game, to be part of the community in a general sense. That they would view that as almost a I don't want to say charity because that's condescending, but they're it's almost like an outreach program that they want to to make sure that they're viewed as good community partners by making sure that they're supporting the women's game. Which leads me to I think we're we're all a wrap after this sort of we address this is that is there a moral obligation for these professionals, highly successful? men's leagues, men's teams to, to support the women's game. Because I can tell you, Jonathan, as you, as you alluded to, the numbers in the, for, of the fan base, uh, of media views, like I can look at my own views and look at how much a women's story I get versus a men's story getting, we're talking about 10% in some cases. Like it's very difficult to make a go right now, but the, it comes into a chicken and an egg argument. If you don't you know, provide the coverage and provide the teams and have them out there and let them grow, then they're never going to grow because – there's just not the the established fan base, the instant fan base right now out there. So is there some kind of, Jonathan, a moral obligation for more clubs to create and to support the professional women's game? Should the Philly Union have a have a NWSL team? That kind of question. No. <laughs> and you picked perhaps the classic example because the Union can't get their own damn house in order, never mind somebody else's. Um, no, there is not a moral obligation. Um we can encourage, uh, you know, we can push, we can make the case, we can show them why it's in their interest, but I don't think there's a moral obligation. And this is part of the challenge that the professional women's sports leagues and teams face, which is attracting people to the cause versus attracting people to the sporting event. Um, I think all three of us are in agreement. We watch sport and we don't care who plays it. Yes. And that, that for a long time, going back to my days is in, a, in the supporters club of the uh, Washington Freedom and the Women's United Soccer Association era in the early 2000s. That has always been my point. The highest compliment that I can pay women's soccer is to simply call it soccer. And in the gender equity debate, you will find women and men who agree with that, and you will find women and men who disagree with that. Um, but I think you'll find a decent number of women who agree with it. 
Yeah, no, that that's what I've always tried to say. I don't cover women's soccer. I cover soccer, and women sometimes play soccer. And that's, that's and you know, and they play it well. And in the case of the United States, uh, they win things, and they uh, they win uh, things when other major sporting events are not going on. So when they win things, twenty five million people watch them, which is wonderful. And, and it leads into all this. It's a, obviously three of us, uh, three men, I should point out, and I think that's pretty obvious, should, uh, aren't going to solve the, uh, the issues that have uh, confounded women's sport for years. But uh, I think it's always worth having a conversation. Uh, Kevin, any final thoughts before uh, we, we take a break and, and move on to some other topics? No, I have to agree with what Jonathan just said. Uh, I do cover sports, and women are just athletes that I cover in those sports, and not necessarily just because they're women, but they're athletes first. And that's how I like to, to view sports. And if you don't like it, well, tough luck. The music on the Sports Podcasting Network is courtesy of St. Clair. Get their EP moving on on stclair.bandcamp.com. talk some hockey now because that's what we do up here we talk about hockey but jonathan you're a big hockey fan as well you said you want to make a comment off the top before we get into the hockey conversation please stop talking about the washington capitals okay because you yes there was a show recently where you said that they might be becoming a stanley cup contender stop that nonsense you know (laughs) i right above my head is a little mini sticker right above where i record every time is a washington capitals mini stick that uh that I've had since childhood, so uh, I'm hoping to, to take that to, to a celebration this year. I, Jonathan, I know exactly what you're saying because I need to, in, until there's two seconds left in the clock and the faceoffs in the opposite zone, even then I would be, you know, with a lead in Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final or something, even then I would be a little concerned. The only year in my entire life, and for, for the listeners who don't know, I grew up in Washington, uh, the only year of my entire life that they made the Stanley Cup Final, I was out of the country when it happened. I just I've, they, I I love them dearly, but they make me miserable every spring. <laughs> they are very um, playoff adverse. We'll call them uh, a lot of those uh, those years. Oh, when they're goaltending, they see that's what the difference Jim is. Right Carrey, now. Well, Jim Carrey, Jim Carrey. Well, yeah. Jim Carrey, he had a had a magical run. But if you go even further back, when when Kevin was you know still uh, toddling around his house, uh, you're talking about guys like Pete Peters and. Mike and they just they couldn't get it done back then. And Peter, they had some great teams. Peter's on the Hunter goal were before my time, but Peter Bondra was my childhood. Nice. I actually, a funny story. I, we weren't going to talk to Caps, but real quickly, I, 
I was Peter Bondra was, uh, you know, right in my zone as well. Although I am old enough to remember the the Dale Hunter goal, uh, the the breakaway goal. I can see it right now as I'm talking and I'm getting excited. But uh, I was uh, driving around when Peter Bondra scored his 500th career goal. He scored it for the Blackhawks, I believe. It wasn't for the Caps. He scored all but like 25 or something for Washington, though. Um, so he, uh, I, I actually pulled the car over to cheer Peter Bondra's 500th goal. So that that was, you know, that's where I come from there. Um, I'm also in Leafs country now, and for people that don't know, I consider myself a Washington Capitals fan first and foremost, but I am a Trontonian, so I do want the Leafs to be successful. I do cheer for the Leafs as well. Uh, I don't think I'll have to worry about a playoff matchup between them anytime soon because uh, Toronto in playoffs isn't something that's going to happen anytime soon. But some speaking of which, to segue this, Kevin. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> what happened in Montreal? Because we had the first very first show of this. If you go back in the archives, we're talking about the Cabs as Stanley Cup contenders. And now Yeah, like they were like unbeaten in nine and like twenty and two in like twenty games twenty two of the games. Yeah. And now they're what, six, twenty and one in their last twenty seven games. What happened? Uh, good question. Uh maybe it's something in the room. I don't necessarily think so. I think there's a lot of injuries, yeah, for sure. Uh Kevin Price being injured. Turns out, oh, he's going to only be gone for a week, then it's a month, then it's months, then it's basically the rest of the season. So I still feel Carey Price is not going to show up. The Habs are in such a disarray right now that goalkeeping, uh, the defense, not necessarily communicating, Markov having one of the worst years of his career, statistically, but not just statistically, with, with the eye test as well. When you're looking at Markov, he lost that step. Yes, he had a great 2-3 season after he come back, came back from hard injuries. But now it's not about the injuries. I think it's just about basically the game is a little faster and it becomes a lot faster. P.K. Subban, sixth best passer in the league. But for some reason, it doesn't translate into wins and into points. And right now, when you look at the standings, the Habs are far, far away from the playoff. And as Michel Terrien said last night, after another defeat, after they've taken the lead and against the lowly Buffalo Rangers, well, it's going to be hard to make the playoffs, Dwayne. It, it can't Buffalo. just be price, can it? I, I don't think it's price. I think price was just a domino effect that once this happens, there's uh, we all seen P.K. Subban in the 24-7 in the All-Star game and all the big moments. He takes a lot of space. doesn't mean that everybody likes a guy who takes a lot of space. I personally think it's a positive thing, but I'm not in the room. I'm not part of the team. I don't follow the team closely. So is there something there? Is there something other people is going on? Is there something with the coach? Is there a disconnect somewhere? I don't know. But on the ice, it's not just a goalkeeper situation. The goalkeeper doesn't score goals first and foremost, but he cannot stop them all. And if there's a lot of chances, if at the most inopportune time, the other team scores, which is the case when you lose lead in the game that you need to win, like last night against Buffalo, to restart the after the, the, the All-Star break, to restart the second half of the season on the good feet, you already lost your first one. The night after, you got a chance to get back on the winning side of things and you lose against Buffalo. It just tells me that there's uh, the confidence is gone and it's a big cliche, but in sports... What you believe you can do and what you do usually are really close to each other. And if you can't believe that you're going to do it, you won't do it. Yeah, Kevin, I'll bring Jonathan. I'm going to bring you in, in a second. Just one quick question. I mean, how hysterical is Montreal right now? Like, it's pretty, oh, it yeah. seems pretty hysterical from here. It, it actually passed the hysterical part to become cynical part now. People have already started to say, yeah, they lost again last night. It really goes quickly from, like you say, Stanley Cup contender to 
uh, overall lottery contender, it really goes quickly. And now people are actually like, yeah, they lost. They're going to make the playoff. Uh, we're all wondering why Terrien is there. And Marc Bergevin said it's going to be on him. Well, guess what? It's on you right now. And that's the feeling. People are already cynical. And that didn't take really long. Jonathan, uh, I, I mean, from an outside perspective, yeah, go ahead. Why I love going up there because I love the passion of the place. But boy, when it turns. It know, turns. And, and look, the, I'm sure you know, the folks we know who work for the Impact will say better that they're angry than apathetic. Yes. Um, although I, there, I saw some tweets going around last night, some of the reporters about the secondary market ticket prices uh, you know, falling through the floor, yeah. which I find interesting. Um, there's a lot of folks up there who have never really liked Michelle Terry, aren't there? Yeah. Uh, and a lot of people, have, you know, it, it, it's something that I'm going to go really deep and really societal problem here. But uh, here in Canada, but especially in Quebec, when it's our own, sometimes it takes a little more for us to appreciate it the right way. And I think with Michel Terrain, it's always been that. Uh, when he was a younger coach, he had a different type of style, a brash style, a, a confident, uh, argumentative and aggressive and in-your-face type of style that people take for... Uh, arrogance or overconfidence, and it rubs people the wrong way. And unfortunately, even it's something that's needed to be at that level of a coach to deal with egos and millionaires and almost billionaires in some cases. You need that brash. You need that confidence. You need that uh, hard grip on your players some way. And that's what helped him with success. And for some reason, it's taken some wrong way. He has rubbed people the wrong way 15 years ago when he was here and some journalists still hold it against him. So there's that feeling. And as soon as he does something wrong, they're quick to judge his work. They're quick to judge his style because, hey, you already you already once were here and didn't make it. So what have changed? So a lot of people are quick to judge the coaching, even though maybe it's not even warranted. Well, let me ask this, and apologies for my computer making noise there. <laughs> um, let me ask this. So it's all well, and you know, you say that, uh, you know, the, the Quebec crowd is... Harder, uh, harder on its own. Are they harder on their own or on the coaches who don't speak French? Both. But uh, if the coach, can, if the coach doesn't speak French, but he wins, you'll never hear anybody complaining about the fact that he doesn't speak French. So but, then, who's left? Yeah, basically, uh, it, it's a conundrum that's comes every couple of days, and I think that's why uh, Marc Bergevin made a big statement last week, coming out saying, "Look, the coach is not. Gonna, I'm not going to fire the coach for the end of the season." Or, or, or even at the end of the season, it's on me. The coach doesn't deal, doesn't sign players. I do. The coach manages the team that he puts on the bench, on the team, on the on the ice. So that is really the one thing that's going on. And there's a lot of weird uh, people look at the John Scott situation and the trade and the fact that he's uh, Montreal traded Tenorti for him and he's in the actual minors now. And look at it weird. It's a weird transaction. The way it happened, the timing of it. And the, the benefit for both teams is really weird. And I think people actually, it rubbed people the wrong way in Marc Bergevin. So for, because of his coming out last week saying he's going to protect the coach, now he actually put the projector on him and he has a target on his back. Hopefully the team can turn around, not necessarily to make the playoff, but just enough because I do believe Marc Bergevin is a general manager that the Montreal Canadiens do need because he has, uh, he knows the identity this team needs. And that's what he's been working on off and uh, on and off the ice or his office. But he's really working hard on it. And he's a boy from Montreal. And I think it's important in a way to give identity. And I think that's where they are. So for him to put 
all the pressure on him. I hope it doesn't go bad and he loses his job because I do feel it's not necessarily his fault either. If Carey Price was not injured, maybe we're not even talking about this situation because Carey Price is such a talent. He does hide some of the problems of a team. And I think this is why we're here because last year he was there to hide the problems. This year with him being gone, the problems are highlighted and we're talking with the worst team in the league right now. Uh, as some, have, as a, sorry, go ahead, Jonathan. I have one uh, counter about Belgevin. I'm not sure he's willing to trust his young players enough. That you're probably right, especially in the uh, 2016 NHL where you need to trust your young players. We saw, okay, they're not all Connor McDavid's out there, but look at McDavid just last uh Last night, uh, two nights ago, when he made his comeback and scored that beautiful goal. The kids, it's his first year and he's dominating. But you need to trust your young guns in the NHL now because of the speed, because of, well, value in the salary cap league. When you're not paying your player a lot and he's contributing a lot, that's what you get value. It's the years, it's the bonus, it's the gravy. That's when you need to strike when the hiring is hot and that's what you need. And maybe that's one thing that the Habs are lacking. Is Look at Galchenyuk. Yeah, he might not have been the, as... Highly prospected as we think, but they never really fully trust him at any point. He has a short fuse with him, with the short leash, I mean, with the coaching staff. So, yeah, I think you're right on there. They're not necessarily trusting the young guns enough. As someone who who does occasionally like to watch the world burn, I got to admit that part of me is cheering for the uh, for the Sportsnet doomsday uh, doomsday scenario of all the uh, Canadian teams missing the playoffs. Although I will argue that there are 16 Canadian teams in the NHL playoffs in any given year if you look at rosters. Uh, how, however, <laughs> it would be kind of amusing to see Sportsnet <laughs> scramble if there are no no home teams to to promote in the first round of the playoffs. I have relatively little sympathy for them. I'm sorry. Yeah, I well, I don't think many people up here do either. That's why it's be kind of amusing. Um, real quickly, uh, a couple ha- have points. We'll we'll, do, we'll move before we move on talk Super Bowl to end the show. Um, the Leafs put a new logo out. It's not a new logo. Uh, in typical Toronto fashion, they did a a forty minute presentation, a, an entire <laughs> show. They dominated the airways for a night just to debut basically something that we all knew that they were going to do anyway. They're doing a throwback to Jersey for their for their hundredth year, although it's going to be their permanent one. Uh, if you look carefully at it, guys. There's a bum at the bottom. The the way that the, the lines interact, it looks like a bottom. And for me, it really looks like you took the old old school vintage vein type of Maple Leaf logo. The logo from last year, you superimposed them, fixed the lines a little. That's what it looks like. All right. Uh, Jonathan, I don't know if you really care about the Leafs logo, but I will ask you one I, final question on I, hockey. I care about um, Toronto's superiority complex to everybody within its own borders. Well, they they don't think that they're better in hockey. Trust me but, in that. But as soon as but as soon as you cross that border, all of a sudden it's quite an inferiority complex. I find, I find that whole dynamic amusing, and I remind folks down here of it when discussing soccer. Often that the TFC the uh, the TFC fan base uh, would like you to know that they are the only ones in Canada that matters, even when in fact they are not correct. Okay, well, we won't go there today, but I do want to ask you one question. That is, Kevin mentioned him off the top, the Connor McDavid coming back, scoring a Bobby Orr-esque goal in his debut. Four defenders just turn around the goalkeeper like it was nothing, scored. It's easy. Game's easy. Yeah, against the Columbus Blue Jackets, we should know. Good team, too. uh, How how well-known is Connor McDavid in the American market right now, Jonathan? Uh, probably not as well known right now as he was before the draft because the Oilers aren't on TV down here very often. Um, but you know, 
the the perception, at least to some of us uh, in this world, is that uh, you know if the guy's name isn't Sidney Crosby, then what does NBC care? Um, Patrick Kane breaks through that a little bit, and the New York Rangers as an entity break through that a little bit. But uh, you know Jack Eichel at this point isn't really even registering in the way that I hoped he would, and that's in part because you know the Sabers aren't that great yet. Um, but, you know, the Penguins dominate the hockey conversation, especially where I live in Philadelphia, you know, where they're just so hated. It's one of the only things that Washington and Philadelphia have in common is they both hate the Penguins. Uh, <laughs> you know, and everything just centers around them. And it, I, you know, I'm more inclined to watch a Penguins game or a Capitals game or something else. Uh, uh, sorry, a, a, a Canadians game or a Capitals game or just whatever than if it's the Penguins and the Rangers on NBCSN. I just don't care about either of them. I don't want to watch them. Quick, so quick question. Ask that question too. I don't know. Quick question, Jonathan. I'm wondering, uh, in the Philly market where you work at philly.com, how is NHL viewed? How is hockey viewed as a top it's sport massive, in the market? Massive. Enormous. The Flyer cool. fan base is... Glad to know. Um, but uh, they're very rapid out the Flyers. They don't pay... Huge amounts of attention to teams in the NHL beyond, um, you know, their historical rivals, the Devils, the Rangers, the Penguins, and the Bruins. Somewhat to the Capitals, somewhat to the Blackhawks because they beat them in the Stanley Cup mm -hmm. final, and somewhat to the Kings because uh, the trade, uh, the Richard and right, the, trade. King, the Kings of the Flyers West, as they're known around here. Yeah, um, and and somewhat to the Maple Leafs just because they used to brawl with each other in the. <laughs> Uh, but no, you know, the Flyers are big and they're finally now starting to th to throw off some of their old guys uh, like Vincent LeCavalier, who miraculously they traded. <laughs> who had a miraculous run with the Kings, by the way. Play, play some intriguing young guys like Shane Gostas Bahir and Travis Konechny and others that give some legitimate hope that this team might actually be decent again at some point. Fair enough. Um, all right, uh, we have gone a little longer than I, than I anticipated, so we will wrap it up now with with a little bit of Super Bowl talk. And when I say a little bit, I'm talking a very little bit. If you want more in depth stuff, you can listen to uh, what's it called again, Kevin? Grid Iron Radio. What is what is that sport? I never heard of. It. Yeah, <laughs> do you know that sport with a pointy ball that they call football, but they're actually barely touching with their is foot? That, is that what the advertisements were all in for the supermarket about people telling to buy lots of food for Sunday night? That's I guess that's what it was. Yes, hand eggs, some people call it, but we're not going to be like that. Um, just a general thought. Uh, we'll get predictions, I guess, because uh, I'm not going to be on uh, Gridiron this week, so uh, i got to get my prediction out, lately out there. Um, Kevin, uh, how do you see the game uh, playing out this on Sunday, for, the big game? <laughs> for once, it's a little bit of a toss-up, but I have to say I do have to either take it with my brain or with my heart. Uh, there is a player named Cam Newton, which is his coming out party in 2016. A player that's true to himself, has decided to be himself on the biggest stage of them all. And uh, I do appreciate that fact that he is a man who likes to have fun, who likes to be happy, who likes to lead men. And there's no other better leader of men in this league than basically the other guy in front of him, who's not going to face him actually, but it's the matchup that everybody's talking about. Peyton Manning, Cam Newton, even though they're not facing each other on the actual gridiron, I do feel that it's going to be a game for the ages because it's a torch passing time. I do hope for a great game and I predict a Panthers win. 
I don't even think it's going to be close, but it's Cam Newton taking the torch from Peyton Manning as maybe the future of this league as one of the best quarterback this league have seen. We've, we did say those hyperboles before when we've seen players like Dante Culpepper, Michael Vick, players that tried to revolutionize the quarterback game, but I do feel Cam Newton's talent ceiling is higher than all the names I mentioned prior. So Cam Newton will maybe revolutionize the quarterback game again, and it starts this Sunday in Santa Clara at Levi Stadium for the Panthers. All right, Jonathan, your thoughts? You know, I I do a podcast down here called Not Another Philly Sports Talk Show with my colleagues uh, David Murphy of the Philadelphia Daily News and Mike Sielski of the Inquirer. And this week we were talking about sort of the mythology of the quarterback and what makes the television pundits, you know, proclaim that some guy is absolutely going to lead his team to a Super Bowl someday or not. And Cam Newton is such a divisive figure because he doesn't fit the prototypical quarterback mold in a lot of ways, and yes, a part of that mold is being white and quiet. Yeah, right. Um, So it's, I think the Panthers are going to win. I think there's a very real possibility that it's going to be a blowout. And uh, if Cam Newton wants to celebrate, by all means, go let him. He's won the Super Bowl. What's so bad about that? Did you ever hear, I'll probably go on my rant that it's been a couple days brewing, but have you ever hear people complaining about people in Lambeau Field jumping in the crowd and celebrating after a touchdown? No! Cam Newton have always did celebration with respect. We're not talking about a guy taking his cell phone outside of uh, the cushion and signing things or taking pictures. No, we're talking a guy just giving the ball to fans that paid good money to see him, that appreciate him, and that loves him. We're talking about a guy who's just making a move and starting creating a culture phenomenon. We're talking a guy who's representing himself, what he likes, what he loves, at the highest positive way you can do it. I don't know why there's such a blowback to him. He doesn't deserve it. What he does is very respectful to other players. He's never argumentative. He's never arrogant in the way he celebrates. He's very fun. It's very happy. It's positive. It comes from a good side, a good point in his brain. He is a player for me that is just the exactly blueprint of what you want your man to be somebody that's himself not trying to be somebody else not trying to fit in the mold that he knows it's not himself he's going to bloom as a player as a human being the way he sees fit and we should all strive for that and i think that's what rubs people the wrong way they wish they were him okay gridiron radio you can listen to more of that later on today um i agree wholeheartedly kevin it's uh, something i rally against in all sports uh quickly i'll I'll end the show with my prediction to the two worst super bowls I can remember in my life have both involved uh, involved the Broncos. Uh, they, yep. when I was a, a kid, uh, Washington killed them. Um, a few years ago, Seattle killed them. I think there might be a hat trick uh, on the on Sunday. I'm not anticipating a great game. I, there could be, you know, there's that classic defensive versus offensive kind of thing that's breaking down there. Um, certainly, the way that they handled New England, but I this Carolina team, uh, they should be talked about. I believe as some of the one of the all-time greatest teams that have played in this league based on what they've done this year uh, they they're going to complete the project on Sunday they're going to complete it and it's not going to be close in my opinion all right guys on that note uh, we'll we'll call it a day on the round table we thank Jonathan once again for joining us and uh, till the next time enjoy uh, enjoy your day you were listening to SPN the sports podcasting network Visit us, sportspodcastingnetwork.com.